Hey everybody, Ulrich Purcell here. I am back with my good microphone. Yeehaw! This is Monday, January 13th, 2020. Holy shit. Yesterday was the last day of the alternate officially. It was the last pickup day with the crew. Two pickup days this weekend. They went great, amazing, awesome. Um, But today we have a new episode for you guys uh, of the show, and this is not alternate-based at all. This is keeping with our theme that we started on Friday, all about uh, our dear uh, co-host Liz Manischel's uh, film, Speed of Life, which came out on Friday, January 10th, which is really exciting. And uh, I did my my due diligence, and you know I've, I saw the movie a while ago, but I gave it a review on Amazon, and I intend to do it on other platforms as well, because... We need to give Liz some love, you know, because, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, she worked really hard in it. I think the performances are amazing. I love the story. I love the sci-fi elements of it. It's uh, it's really great. So um, if you haven't seen it yet, you know, please go ahead and rent it right now. Uh, buy it now, even, maybe. And then if you dig it, you should give it a review. And even if you like it, you should also give it a review and give it a good one because that'll be very helpful for Liz and helpful for other people to find the movie and, uh and yeah, so support independent filmmaking, support Liz Manischel's film, film Speed of Life, because it is a good one. All right, so this episode is one that was done without me while I was making the alternate. This is uh, Liz talking to her producing team on Speed of Life about the process of making the film. And uh, I haven't listened to this one yet, but I actually will listen to this one because I do listen to episodes that I'm not on um, because uh, I love podcasts. And I mean, this I made this podcast because I wanted to listen to this podcast and I just can't. I don't like really listening to myself very much. I only do it if I have to. But um, yeah, but I'm not on it. So this will be a great one for me. Um, All right. I'm done rambling and bambling. Um, Here is episode, I believe, 241. Uh, making movies is hard uh, with uh, Liz Manchel and the producing team behind Speed of Life. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischel, and we recorded this episode probably a few weeks ago. I attempted to write an episode without Ulrich while he was shooting the alternate, and I attempted to interview my own producers of my latest feature, Speed of Life, so that we could break down how we made the movie and why we did what we did. I don't know if it worked. You be the judge. I found myself a bad host and completely biased and not wanting to bug my producers too much with too many questions. So we'll see. Anyway, the film is out now. You could check out how to see it at speedoflifefilm.com. We also recorded um, a much more dense episode because Ulrich was involved, uh, where we interviewed uh, the production designer of the film, Marcy Mout. And um, that's also on our site and the place where you found this podcast. (laughs) Just wanted to thank you for tuning in. And if you have any questions about how we made the movie, feel free to reach out lizmanichelle at gmail.com. And I hope you enjoy this episode. We all worked on Speed of Life. Yeah, Yeah. we did. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. So I have Pardis. Sullins and JD Compton. Josh, when did it become JD? Oh, it's so confusing. <laughs> I just credit myself that way when I'm an above the line creator on something. So a producer, director, or writer. And I, I got it in undergrad. Wait, you've been doing this for years? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my one of my very first film projects I ever made in undergrad, my email address was JD Compton at Ball State or whatever, .edu. And my partner on those early projects was like, dude, JD Compton sounds like so much more badass than Josh. You should put that on all your projects. And I just kept doing it ever since then. <laughs> it's <laughs> also so a little homage to JD Salinger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have Party Sullins and JD Compton, producers of Speed of Life. Noticeably absent is Nick Bertelson, who is too busy on a location scout or something. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Something. Same. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for like being open to this ridiculous idea of talking about this movie that you spent like the past three years of your lives on. Like, let's just reopen all old wounds. Let's talk about how and why each of you jumped on board. Pardis, why did you jump on board this project? I love you, Liz. That's why. (laughs) 
I met you, as you remember, at yeah. Phoenix officially, although we had Liz's first film, Bread and Butter, and my first film, and my husband, Cole Sullins, who wrote and directed uh, Listening, on the festival circuit at the same time. So, right, we saw each other at Woodstock, we saw each other at Cleveland Film Festival, but we didn't really start hanging out till Phoenix Film Festival, which we had so much fun at. And yeah, I loved your movie. I loved you and just wanted to work with you again. So I think you sent me Speed of Life and I read it and also fell in love with the script and said yes right away. Well, two things to note there. One is I remember meeting you that night. I remember thinking, oh, she's like really cool and popular. Like I'm going to snub her. Like I remember being at the restaurant and seeing you and you were so nice and so charming. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I could get along with her. She's too cool. And then I remember you came up to me specifically and started a conversation and I was like oh she's so nice I just want to hang out with her all the time so I just wanted to share my side of the conversation there meanwhile I'm in my mind thinking I'm so awkward and saying the dumbest things to everybody and I put my foot I put my foot in my mouth probably like 10 times that evening so I think you're wearing a pantsuit like I remember your outfit (laughs) I don't own a pantsuit but I would love to I don't know what I was wearing it was like a moment where I was like oh she's the popular girl oh And then the other side of the coin of our meeting, I remember talking to you about Speed of Life and thinking, oh, you know, everyone is kind of, they give that, what's that expression? It's just like, they don't really mean it when they send me your script and they don't really mean it when they want to hang out or talk about a project. And so I remember you said something like, send me your script or tell me about it. And I just thought it was, I just took it for face value. And then I was so surprised. (laughs) That the really surface level interaction turned into something so meaningful. So thank you. So meaningful. Yeah. This is turning to a different podcast than I had intended. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Josh, I remember why when you jumped on board, you were the first producer. Was I the first, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't think that we were having a meeting about producing necessarily. It was when we met at that coffee shop in Burbank, right? Yeah. I just remember, obviously, we've been friends for a long time. And I didn't get to work on your first movie. So when you were working on this one, I remember you did the Kickstarter campaign and we were in that writer's group. Although I don't remember, were you working on this in that group or not? I don't. I was, but it was okay. called like, I'll Fly Away. It was called something really different. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, obviously the project started off pretty differently than what it became. Right. It was pre-David Bowie death. But yeah, I just wanted to work with you and, you know, you get projects done. Like a lot of people start things and can't bring them to fruition. And I really wanted to make a feature film. And I thought, you're definitely gonna do this. And that's why I wanted to help you in some way. So we had that meeting to just kind of talk about the script, because I thought it was a cool idea, what it was back then, even as well as what it became, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you just said, like, well, would you want to produce this with me? And I was like, Oh, goodness, that's a lot of responsibility. This is like too nice. It's like making me uncomfortable how nice this is. And maybe we should just talk about horrible things that happen on set and all the pain that you both had to endure during this project (laughs) oh god josh you should talk about all the horrible things that happen on set well the the problem i wish nick was here because i don't have hardly any stories no but it's like yeah it started out right away for you well yeah my great great disappointment of the whole process of making this movie was that i got super super sick on day two of production and missed almost the entire shoot. <laughs> but it was so but sad. not because you wanted to. Yeah, you was I remember cat allergies had something to do with it. Yeah. I mean we could we maybe could back up all the way to pre-production and kind of work through in order of how we made the movie, but that location was so complicated, I think, for us to find. And Pardis was the one who, I think, saved the day on that, right? You found that location, well, didn't you? Uh, Jen Fisher found that location. Okay. Um, but yeah, we, I was, Liz put me in contact with her and we were looking all around Santa Clarita, I believe, right? Am I, mm-hmm. I missing? Yeah. And then, and then also ended up in that small town and it was lovely. Yeah, it ended up working out. But yeah, because of where we were and the, how big of a space it was there were some issues one of them being 
that they had these lovely cats that a few people were allergic to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think what happened was we were we were in the location a couple of days ahead of time, like loading in gear and getting it ready. And Nick and you especially like did all this cleaning, which I wish I could have helped with, but I was trying to, you know, minimize my exposure to cats and allergens and stuff. And then, yeah, like, you know, those are hard. We, we do a lot of work and it's very tiring. And so by the time we were starting production, my immune system was probably already a little weakened. And I think also maybe somebody on our crew might have had a bug on that first day that they were getting over. And so I think my immune system was just compromised by exposure to the cats and everything. And yeah, I was driving one of our actresses home on the second day. And as soon as I dropped her off, I started heading back to set. And I was just like, Oh, I feel really bad. And I think I got caught in traffic and wasn't going to make it back before we wrapped anyway. So I went home and then maybe like an hour after that, I went out to buy a thermometer because I was feeling so terrible and I had like a 104 degree temperature, which hasn't happened to me since I was, I don't know, since I had the chicken pox in like third grade. But that's like emergency room temperature. Yeah. Yeah. I've been told that uh, now after the fact, (laughs) but uh, you know, it worked out. I did go to the doctor a couple days later when I continued to feel miserable. I just, I don't get that sick normally. I just thought like I I have a cold and I can just work through it. If I take a day or two off, I'll just do my best to rest and recuperate really quickly. Didn't really recover until the last couple of days of production. And I came back for, you know, a few hours here and there when I could to run hard drives or do some errands for you guys. But I missed almost all of the onset stories. It was so sad. But you were so vital during post-production. So it it almost worked out. Like had you been on set every day, Maybe you wouldn't have felt the the impetus. To- <laughs> the need to take ownership. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I probably would have, just because I was a post-production person in my day job, probably still would have done it. But <laughs> I definitely, I know, really did feel like a responsibility to make up for what I couldn't do during production, for That's sure. so crazy, because I just am like so indebted to the producers of this project. So like the fact that anyone would feel like they weren't living up to their title or something is so crazy to me. I'm sure we all know how hard it is to find a good producer. And I felt very grateful. Maybe we should start in the very beginning. I mean, the idea of we talked about how we all met, but you know, the film was financed through many different channels. The script went through like 15 million iterations. Josh, you came up with the title of the script, I remember. Mm-hmm. Ardis, you were a big part that. of financing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Josh, how did you do it? Well, I think it was once we introduced the idea of David Bowie's death being an inciting incident in the film. We were just trying to find a title because orig- like back then it was called Plan B, still, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And... I don't know. We just we were talking about how we wanted to change the title. So I was looking at David Bowie music and lyrics for inspiration. And I saw a song called Speed of Life. And I listened to it. It's I think it's just instrumental. So it didn't really inform the movie a lot. But it just I don't know. It was evocative. I think I put it on a list with some other titles like, hey, do any of these strike your fancy? And that's what you jumped toward. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool, though. I love that. And, you know, I think a new career in a new town was taken. Just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> bad, bad inside Bowie joke. Okay, so we all met probably around, I'm guessing, 2014 for me and Pardis. And then I'm guessing Josh, you and I probably started talking about it in 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. It's four years since. There was a lot of, it was 12 days shoot, one location, micro budget film, financed through 15 million different ways. <laughs> I was going to save this question for the end, but I think actually it might be better for the beginning. Would you ever do micro budget again going through what you did on this production? Absolutely. Well, yeah, you guys are both, you are doing another micro budget <laughs> <Yeah>. right now, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> we're trying to. <laughs> yes, we're You're, trying. That's the same thing. That's doing it, right? Yeah. That is yeah. what it is. I would do it again. It's just tough. Your circumstances have to allow you to be able to commit that sort of time. It's an investment of, of you know, your own time and energy. Mm-hmm. I would do it again if, if I felt like I had the the space for it. I just don't know if I have that right now with what I'm doing. Well, what are the painful parts of micro budget? Is it, I mean, obviously the fact that there's no money to solve problems is like probably number one, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But did you face any other major obstacles just because of the resources of the film? Well, I remember just figuring out the format that we were going to shoot it in. That was really challenging because we were looking at our initial budget breakdown and how much we had to spend on every department. And I think it was, you know, in pre-production, we were kind of looking at, I don't know, I just think we, we didn't really have line items for a lot of the like minutia that you need, like hard drives and camera cards and just things like that. 
And so we were figuring out what, what can we afford to shoot in terms of like buying storage capacity and making sure that we were covering our bases. So a lot of what I was doing in pre-production was figuring out like how much data we were going to use based on the cameras that we were looking at using and how much hard drive space we would need and calculating what that would all end up being and what it would cost us because those were just unavoidable costs of storage space. That was tough. That was something we couldn't get around and you can't kind of sneak your way out of by just asking people to do work behind the scenes or whatever. So some of those like hard costs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're just pretty tricky to figure out like, okay, how can we make this the best we can and the coolest and the most future proofed in terms of format and just quality and how it looks and everything and being appealing to distributors and at the same time be able to afford that technological convenience. I remember we were talking a lot about is like 4K, 6K, mm-hmm. 8K, 2K. Like it was like <laughs> always vacillating between our options. And as you mentioned, future proofing, we didn't know what kind of film we had. We didn't know how it was going to be received. So the idea is prepare for it to be a Sundance film that gets a Netflix deal and have all of the infrastructure in order to do that while also recognizing that we have the budget for a much, much smaller project. And yeah, remember was, how hard that was. Yeah, but I think we probably were still thinking like, are we going to shoot this on DSLRs? Are we going to shoot this yeah. on like real film cameras? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what can it be? What are we even capable of doing? That was kind of hard to to drill down on. What about you, Parties? I think it was, yeah, as both of you mentioned, but also trying because we didn't have, we don't, you don't have money to throw at it being a micro budget. It's like preparing for everything that will go wrong and knowing that you're going to have to wear all these different hats, um, which you do during pre-production, production and post. All of us have all these other roles that we had to kind of fill in. So I think, yeah, it was for yeah for example like locations were really became like it was a wonderful location we were able to use it for address it for different sets and different homes and stuff like that that was really interesting but also trying to prepare for unforeseen things and also knowing that you can't ask people that you're not paying that much to do it so you're gonna have to do it (laughs) um which i love like i love and i'm happy to do it as long as everyone's being nice (laughs) i think that's the most important thing for me too being working with people you like to work with makes everything so much easier i don't think you slept the all 12 days of production yeah i doubt you did no john kellogg and i john kellogg our line producer and i did not sleep i think i had like we had what we shot for five or six days and then had two days off and then shot for another six days i think i kind of had a break (laughs) break down that weekend <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, not that anything was going r- wrong but I'm not usually that emotional but I like came home and like couldn't stop crying for like an hour um <laughs> over nothing I was just I think yeah lack of sleep gets you super loopy I was thinking about that Marielle Heller I guess she did a interview with Terry Gross maybe and It was all about uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood and how she wanted to abide by European hours, which were like 10-hour days, so that Mm. everyone could get home and see their family. And the counter-argument was always, when's lunch? How are you going to take lunch? It was like a standing lunch instead of a sit-down lunch. It was like, well, you're not really giving your crew a break. And it's a 10-hour day is a really long day already. It's like, no matter what, in Mm -hmm. any circumstance... It's like something is always compromised, but especially for you, Parties. <laughs> I felt like you were pulled in like 30 different directions. I don't think the Marielle Heller thing was a good comparison, but just the idea of you solved every problem, but then you were like the ultimate sacrifice that the production made. You sacrificed yourself, I think is what um, I'm saying. I think it's, yeah, sure. But I think it's also, yeah, you look at it, it's 12 days, we can get through it. And like our job as producers is to make sure it gets done. So you do whatever you can to do that. And yeah, I was happy to do it. I had Josh was there, like being able remotely to do shuttle runs. We had like John was there. John Kellogg was by my side working as many hours as I did. And uh, Nick was there. I mean, he he had to leave for four or five days of the shoot, but he was also there. So it's just make like having the support, which we thankfully did that it like the burden could be kind of put on a few people rather than just one makes things easier for sure. That's true. But to be fair, most of the burden, I think, did land on you. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you remember like we had catering things on day oh, one or two that you were able to deal with? I don't oh know. gosh. You no, did so much. day two was the worst day. I showed up late that day. Do you remember? Oh yeah. Do you oh remember? my God. That was so bad. I, that day two was probably, it, that seems to happen also like the first couple of days on set, it takes a while to get a rhythm going and then oh, yeah. things all like end up working out just fine. But yeah, day two was. A, Wait, what happened day two? Remind me. I showed up like I'm I was first person there it was before we had an extra key you remember we had to put a lock on the gate because our equipment (laughs) and yeah just to make the site more secure and uh and the house keys and I was the only one who had the keys to the location and because we did not have a location manager or a production manager I think I showed up just I mean it wasn't that bad but I think I showed up like 10 minutes late and everyone was waiting for me and you know doors should have been open and everyone was I don't know it just started off on a bad foot and then lunch was late and we because we didn't have great service up there I couldn't get a hold of our caterer so yeah just kind of that's a good example too of like the micro budget challenge because in a lot of ways we were in that location because that was the the location that we were able to afford and we could get but yeah it was remote it wasn't easy to work it was an hour away yeah and it was I think that's why it was difficult for the caterer to just find the location I think that was part of the problem and Mm -hmm. you don't have the resources to buy better communication systems wireless wi-fi routers and things like that although we, we did get some of that stuff eventually but I don't know you just you're you're so limited with what you can do to mediate those those situations that are really hard to work around when you're mm-hmm. on a micro budget. That's right. There was no reception. I forgot no. about that. Mm-hmm. Or there's yeah. very limited. Like I think I had okay reception when I was there, but there were only like three or four people that had moderate cell reception up there. I think I we think all had to turn off their phones. Remember that, like, just to limit the bandwidth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we there was better service upstairs, and then we were able to join the network, but we were only giving it to, like, five or six people. Because, right. yeah, it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was very, it was all very interesting. <laughs> yeah. You just have, like, the weirdest challenges, I feel like, when you're on a micro budget. I don't know. Just every little day infrastructure stuff can suddenly yeah. become, like, a burden. Or a challenge to get past. Yeah. I want to get to what made it worth it. But like, I also feel like we haven't really belabored the point of all the challenges of the production. I mean, so it was a 12 day shoot because that's what we could afford. Mm-hmm. It was a one location shoot because that's what we can afford. Mm-hmm. It was. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be one location though, right? We wanted to go shoot out in the world for that one. Yeah. Scene. We were planning to do it the whole time. And it, <laughs> We kept pushing the outdoor scenes like later and later, like, well, we'll find a place to go shoot this, right? <laughs> yes. Like, maybe we'll go steal it. I think I was like, we should look in Chinatown. and yeah. yeah. And then the lighting, the issue was like bringing lights. We couldn't bring lights to a place like Chinatown because we'd mm-hmm. be really super conspicuous. But then we wouldn't have enough light for the visual effects that we wanted to do if we didn't bring lights. And it was like this constant yeah. challenge. And then... To work with a name cast with no resources was another challenge. To work with a crew that was like so dynamic and wonderful, but also really young. There was mm-hmm. like our camera and GE crew was quite young, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other things just to kind of mention <laughs> that were hard. Yeah, no money. The fact that the hosts were living on site while we were shooting for yeah. some of the dates. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was a big one. <laughs> yeah, that was another one you had to you had to jump it in field, right? <laughs> yes, which we were able to solve. But yeah, that was that was a big one. Yeah, I think just not realizing like how much of a footprint we were going to have because we originally were going to have like a G&E truck there. And then we ended up deciding that we were going to store all the equipment there, which made it complicated and gave us such a larger footprint that we than we thought we were going to have on the house. And they wanted to be able to at least have like a little small home base to come back to, but we literally took over all of the rooms. And when we were done in one bedroom, we were setting up in the other one. And so there was nowhere for them to really live when they needed to come back. So yeah, it ended up being solved, but that was also something that was sort of unforeseen that was it, yeah, that came up in the middle of the shoot as well. Yeah, like we did our best to accommodate them and then it just wasn't going to quite work. Yeah. But they were, I mean, they were very generous. 
they to were not so, pull the plug on us and they were so nice yeah mm-hmm. they were so incredible and understood like what i mean a lot of people say oh yeah it's like so exciting come shoot at our place and kind of don't realize what that means and there's always going to be something that gets ruined and even if we're super careful about it but they just were so accommodating and were really like loved Liz, loved the project and were willing to work with us, which was awesome. I think the David Bowie connection actually helped a lot for some yes. reason. And the fact that Anne Dowd was in the film, I, or I don't know if Anne was the draw or, or other cast members, but I think there's something about our house is involved in this film that's a tribute to David Bowie and and I remember the husband was in the music industry so Mm -hmm. maybe that was something and then the idea that name cast were involved so it's like maybe they felt like the film had legs I don't know but I agree they were so kind but I under impossible circumstances for everyone Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. yeah Yeah, there's a huge reliance on, I guess, just the kindness and goodwill of the people you're working with when you're doing micro budget, just because at some point it will come to a a point where you have to kind of put your passion ahead of your comfort level, whatever Mm. your role is on the movie. And I guess that's kind of where luck comes into it, because we're just very lucky that, you know, those people did identify with the story and were willing to make sacrifices for like on our behalf for the movie just because you were able to get them to believe in it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. We're very lucky. I want to talk a little bit about cast because I think, because honestly, I don't remember all of the conversations we have had over the past several years about cast, but would you talk a little bit about your experience and how we put the cast together? Oh, Oh. I feel like you're the one who did that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What are we going to say? Well, no, because there was always a conversation between all of us, right? I mean, like, I might have written, like, the email. I think I wrote the emails. Honestly, I black it out. I black out what I do. I think you're such a, like, wizard when it comes to casting and knowing what you'd like your characters, who you'd like your characters to be and all that stuff. And so we, like, kind of followed your lead and helped give input when we thought we you needed it. But I think it was mm-hmm. you were reaching out, you were coming with a, uh, coming to us with the list of people that you'd like to work with. And Anna, of course, was on top of that, as well as Allison. And you worked your wonders <laughs> and got them on the project. I think, yeah, you should talk about this. Yeah. Well, I think there's something random about the experience, though. I was curious about if you felt the randomness that I felt. <laughs> I guess um, not. I don't think as far as with Anne and Allison, I don't feel like it was randomness, maybe with finding the other, yeah, being casting the other roles, possibly. But yeah, yeah, it was always, oh, go on, Josh. I remember like when you were writing it, we would bounce ideas around a lot. Who are our dream cast? And who could we get to? It just, but it's also pie in the sky. And none of it felt very real. It was just like, well, yeah, we'll reach out to these people and hope for the best. And then once you got Anne, it Felt like a lot of the other pieces fell into place. I would describe it almost more naturally than haphazardly. It was her managers were very helpful in terms of like trying to get us to other people. And isn't, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of how it happened. Right. But it was all through you. I Mm -hmm. kind of heard all about it when you would give us updates like, oh, now (laughs) we've got the script to Allison Tolman. And I was like, what? I love her. That's amazing. (laughs) How did you do that? Allison Tolman. And I tell her all the time. And by all the time, I mean, like, the three times I've ever been able to text her that she's like my favorite actress. Mm -hmm. I just think I just love her so much. Oh, yeah. I I remember when she was on set and I was just thinking myself, I don't have anything to say to her. She just nailed the scene, was this like superhuman force. And then I guess as a director, you feel like you're supposed to have an adjustment just to even make your voice heard but I had no adjustment and I didn't even want to say anything I just wanted to sit and watch her for (laughs) hours she's so wonderful I know from my perspective I always felt like things were quite random Mm -hmm. I would watch a tv show that I watch regularly and I would ask Sean and I you know my partner and I'd be like you like that guy he'd be like yeah I like that guy and then we'd send an email to their rep and be like do you want to be in this movie (laughs) 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 it was like very I think There was a lot of talking about different people, but ultimately the reach outs were quite impulsive and almost foolish at times. And that's not to be self-deprecating. That's that's genuine. And I didn't know if that's how it felt to you, but I've I masked it well. So that's good. 
That's what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah, I think without having, <laughs> I think it's the same thing with micro budgets, like not ha- being able to have a casting director makes things kind of random. <laughs> it's like whenever you get inspired, it's like, yeah, they would work in right. trying to reach out to them to see if it works. I think there ha- there is this level of randomness there too, because we don't have this roster of people that we can reach out to. So it's reaching it, out who you think. Sorry, go ahead, Josh. Oh, no. Well, I, I was going to say, it was just, it was, it was fun though. Cause I remember yeah. we did start getting submissions from managers once. Yeah. And, and maybe once Allison were signed on. And so like choosing the roles for Edward and Jeff's character, whose name I'm blanking Samuel. on right now. Samuel. Yeah. <laughs> like that was fun. Cause then we started getting actual submissions of people either where <laughs> they were reels or we got a few people even to read for us. Right. Yes. And I remember, I won't go into it because I think Ray is the perfect person for Edward. And ultimately, we ended up with the perfect Ray. He put himself on tape. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember sending the video to Allison and Anne being like, what are your thoughts? And I remember Allison said something like there's something behind those eyebrows or something something <laughs> like that. Like she was a, a saying like there's something there. There was like a real gravitas to this actor there. And of course, I knew of Ray because of Ash versus Evil Dead and he's so wonderful. Um, but I hadn't really seen him in anything dramatic recently. And so that that was like a really exciting experience. When, anytime anyone puts themselves on tape, you just feel oh, wow, they took the time. I don't know, because there's often those actors that are like offer only. And it (laughs) seems like there's that sparkliness to that phrase, I'm offer only. And I always think (laughs) it's really humble if an actor is willing to put themselves on tape for you. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the commitment that you had to getting as diverse of a cast as we could and in all different ways? Well, I'm curious about what you two think about this. But yeah, the goal of this film, I wrote and directed Bread and Butter and you know, we really tried to have an open call for actors and there was no specific desire for the cast to be Caucasian, but uh, it did land that every single member of the cast was Caucasian. And I always felt like that was a disservice to the world, like the world of the film, not the world in general. I don't think the film did a disservice to the world. (laughs) Um, But I really wanted to make a concerted effort to be very inclusive in the casting process and to push for diversity on screen. And I remember going to agents and managers and saying, and I think the awkwardness of this is because it feels like it's tokenistic when I describe it. So I don't know how you feel, but I would say like, you know, we're looking for an actor of color for this role. And they would be like, what do you mean of color? And I would be like, not Caucasian. And we would have to like define what that meant. And then different agents defined color differently. They would suggest an actor who was Middle Eastern and they would say, is this enough color for you? And I would say, yes. (laughs) I didn't know how each of you felt about that and if, if it felt tokenistic, if it felt... I remember Gabriel Blanco was involved in the production for a while to help produce and he felt it was not my responsibility to solve the world's diversity problems with this film and that I should just cast the biggest names. And I didn't know how you two felt. I don't know. It's so hard to know, I don't know, what's where, where different lines are and what's right or wrong in the casting process but from my perspective I just thought it was cool that was something that you put out there as like a value of the film we made it like the fact that it was part of the conversation with the casting directors it gave emphasis to the fact that you wanted to have a cast that I don't know was just representative of all kinds of different people and I feel like by just expressing it once or twice to people it just defines the value of the film and what you're doing and then the process kind of works itself out right then you're just looking at talented people and deciding who's the best person for the role and what cast is going to work best together. I think so. But I think there's also, mm-hmm. I kind of always regretted not, it's a double-edged sword because I think if I were to say, we're looking for a Puerto Rican actor for this role, it would have been specific and it would have been pointed, but then someone would have been like, why do they have to be Puerto Rican? You know, like, and then I'm this like, like super pale yeah. white lame girl being like, I gotta have this part. It feels tokenistic no matter what. I know. Well, sometimes, you know, sometimes the script specifically calls for it. In this case, your script didn't really call for any sort of background for any character. Right. So mm-hmm. it just kind of gives you like an open sandbox to play in. And I just feel like you just think it helps to give a little, oh, I don't know how to explain this. You color? This out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, not color, but just like, you just, you know, you created the space to, I don't know, just find as unique a cast as you could. 
I don't know how to say this. <laughs> no, that sounded, I, I think that makes sense. I appreciate that. Pardis, as the only person of color on our crew, <laughs> do you want to weigh in? Oh, um, yeah, person of color. Yeah, I, yeah, I think what both of you are saying is right, that it's like, I mean, especially what Josh is saying is that just being able to put it out there makes it easier for that to happen. Like, as you, as you were saying, bread and butter, it wasn't your intention for the cast to be all white but it happened to be that way and that is that tends to be the trend in the industry sometimes unless you write a specific character that's supposed to be puerto rican black like middle eastern it's hard to sometimes i don't know why but and i think things are changing very rapidly but it it has been difficult to maybe cast someone of color in those roles a lot of times yeah there is that argument that you want the biggest name you want the biggest name but also there's value in what you're saying which is having diversity and diversity on screen that's important as well so I don't know I don't think it's tokenistic I think it was great and I think it was awesome that you stuck by that especially because we ended up having a couple roles uh, cast that way it's awkward because I don't know if you've heard this response to the film Mm -hmm. but so there's two actors of color in the film Mm -hmm. and they both you know they have darker skin and black hair and it's curly and a lot of people have interpreted them as being related as Mm. as Mm. like a way to read the film and um they're completely different ethnicities they just both happen to have dark curly hair and I've always, I've never known how to respond to that because it's like, sure, whatever. If you want to think that's intentional, like that makes me sound like a better director. <laughs> like Maybe there's like a goal to aesthetically match everyone in this film. But ultimately, it seems like it was a reflection of the lack of color on screen because if a lot of diverse casts, if people were exposed to a lot of diverse casts, they wouldn't just assume that every diversity casting decision was appointed one yeah and not to get off phil's like get (laughs) that it's a reflection of our world too is like i get that all the time like i was working at a company where i was like one of the only people like yeah my background's iranian the director of the company was also iranian a young woman and we sort of looked like and everyone always assumed we were sisters so it's just like people do that (laughs) and i think it's just um not everyone some people and i think it's like yeah the more representation there is on screen and the, the more diversity and like yeah different people from all over the world there are on screen that it'll help I mean, not that there's harm in that, but I think people will start realizing that, yeah, having people with different backgrounds on screens, having different families look like having families look different ways is all normal and part of this world. And that's okay to portray on screen as well. Well, let's jump to distribution because the film is made. It's it's out into the world by the time that this podcast is out into the world as well. And do you want to talk a little bit about what your goals are for the film and, and guess challenges and how you see the reception of it or anything like that. Yeah. With distribution. I mean, this once again, I think is Liz, this is your territory. And like we, I felt like I was there just to support you and give input when I could. And it's so incredible all we've accomplished and especially the theatrical, which I'm so excited about. I don't know if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Well, it's just one night. Yeah. (laughs) So far. Yeah, Yeah, so far. far. Yeah. Well, we're doing a one-night theatrical. And by the time this podcast comes out, we will have done it. But yes, I've never... I always thought that theatrical events were... I didn't really know how that happens. How does a filmmaker go and get their movie to movie theater and it turns out you just email the exhibitor and say hey would you like my movie (laughs) and they sometimes say yes and that's so crazy to me that I didn't know it I just assumed there was this like long process or this gate you had to push yourself through or this you know these hoops you had to jump but yeah so we're playing in San Francisco for one night and we get a little bit of a the cut of the ticket sales but only nine people have bought tickets so far so (laughs) hopefully more by the by the time this airs (laughs) hopefully yeah. yeah. And we're going to have a we're going to have a band there, right? Yeah. That's the idea is like we're we're mixing semi theatrical, which is like colleges, universities, community center screenings for free. Those are like free screening opportunities with digital marketing, so doing like Facebook ads and then maybe a few one-off 
theatrical one night events with a David Bowie cover band there. So it's like a big mishmash of all these different things just to kind of make an impact and make as many impressions as possible. And then hopefully to get the word out enough so that maybe we can be on a cool SVOD platform and make mad money, yo. Yeah. I feel like I've just been kind of, yeah, the same thing, watching you do the distribution process yourself again, Liz. It's been really cool to see. Again, like I haven't ever been on this side of it before in in this sort of capacity or role. But I mean, it was just amazing to see all the emails that you would copy us on where people were really interested in the movie and we had the opportunity to pick the distributor that we wanted to go with. And it's mostly just been a learning experience for me. (laughs) I don't have a whole lot to contribute to the idea of like distribution. I'm clearly asking questions that only make me look really good right now. And I'm trying (laughs) to think of questions that really emphasize our suffering. But this, there wasn't that much suffering, speed of life. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, at least I feel that way. Did I I remember it wrong? Is that what, that's what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, there were definitely things that were hard and challenging. We, hit some of them. Pardis was right. Like everybody was really amazing to work with. We had a great group of people around us. And even if it was hard, it was still like not that hard to to do the work. I think, I think one, I guess one thing I during post-production was that we, there was right. There was a bit of a time crunch there where like visual effects weren't going to be done in time. We were trying to get it to the, we were trying to get it to the festivals and there was a point where we're like, Oh man, this might not happen. We might not make the deadline in time and it ended up being okay. But maybe we're, you're thinking about that, that that was maybe a bit of a stressful time. But yeah, that was, that was a little stressful for me. I was trying to isolate. Liz from it as much as I could because yeah you were starting to get festivals interested in the movie we weren't quite done with it and yeah we were struggling with really just the wormhole visual effects mm-hmm. that was really the thing that was the most complicated uh, in terms of post-production probably like all of post-production just the wormhole effect the wormhole was the hardest thing in the world because I didn't know what a wormhole was supposed to look like mm-hmm. and so I remember having conversations with you Josh and you really like took up the mantle of helping the production out there like so grateful for you oh, kinda, <laughs> but at the end of the day it's still your wormhole it's still I think we went to your original concept of it that you are communicating no i wanted a vaginal wormhole josh do you not remember my vaginal wormhole it, it, <laughs> is, a, it is a vaginal wormhole it's vaginal it's not enough it's oh. not vaginal enough <laughs> oh it's not for your taste i'm so sorry we should have we should have made more of a point to leave time for that no 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 it looks great it looks amazing yeah. we did the right whatever we did was right yeah we got basically we did get into a situation though where we we found a, a new company to work on the wormhole effects for us very late last minute and then I think we agreed to screen at a film festival. Yeah, it was just a mad dash. Yeah, like a two-week turnaround. Yeah, we literally, we basically just literally ended up in a position, yeah, where we had two weeks to finish several shots that had been so complicated and we just didn't have anything that worked at that point. And I think I said, you know, yeah, we can say yes to that festival and there's a really good chance that we'll hit it as long as this next attempt at the wormhole effect all goes kind of perfectly and I was like if any one thing goes wrong we're not going to have any lead time to tell the festival that we need to pull out or anything and I just was like I don't know if that's going to be embarrassing for us or if that's something we don't a position we don't want to put ourselves in yet but (laughs) it all worked out we decided to go for it and the company that did our wormhole effects did a really great job and we were able to still give them notes and you know I mean I think you we would have liked a little bit more development time and time to work with them a little bit more closely. It would have been cool if we found them a few weeks earlier, but it all worked out. I'm really happy with how those shots turned out. I love Mm -hmm. it. And some of those, I think two of the shots from their work is in the trailer and is like so incredibly impressive. I think when I talk about how painful it was, it's not the experience. It's not like, like clearly we, we got a movie done and I'm so proud of everything we did, but it was like, I think every stage of it, I wasn't sure that we would. And then we did. Mm-hmm. But I think when you put a team together, it's always like, are we really a team? Is everyone really on board to make this movie? And as directors, like Josh, you're a director as well, Pardis, you should be, but you're not. We're never really sure that our team is as committed. And I knew I had like the best producers in the world, but I constantly felt 
like I was going to screw up or like there'd be an earthquake or like there was a car accident and all the drives would be lost or just something was going to happen to destroy all our fortune. And I think that was really painful. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the production itself, I don't think was that bad. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully we mitigated a lot of those risks ahead of oh, time. Yeah. Those yeah. sorts no. of things. I think we did. Yeah. I think you did too. I think my imagination is just like, what if this giant tarantula appears out of nowhere <laughs> yeah. and spits its poison on Anne Dowd? You know, like, well, that's, that's the meat and potatoes of what producing is, right? It's like thinking of all the possible ways things can go wrong and having in the back of your mind a way to deal with it. And when they do go wrong, staying calm and with micro budget doing it yourself because mm-hmm. no one else is there to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In closing, do either of you have any anecdotes from set that you want to share, whether silly or horrible or awkward i mean i like loved all the wildlife we were dealing with on set right first day of production the birds flew in the house and we had to get it out (laughs) and then some point in the production a bat ended up in the green room <laughs> do you remember <laughs> yes and also remember angela was so proud of herself when she yes. got that bat yeah that was great and just like also having john kellogg screaming during the entire entirety of it which will get so upset me for bringing up but his reactions were the best <laughs> yeah. i missed the bat but it was sort of wasn't it right? It's just, it sort of fit the movie that we had a couple little birds fly in yeah. on day one. That was very yeah. fitting. Yeah. It did. That, I actually, I remember a bird flying in, but I don't remember what happened to the bird and how we got the bird out. Bruce? I think Bruce got it. Yes, Bruce I feel got like it. it. Was I have Bruce. a photo of him with it. Yeah, Bruce got oh, it. Yeah, he just, I think it was like by a window and he was able to kind of sneak up on it and just mm-hmm. gently grab it and take it back outside. He's such a hero. He yeah. really is. Yeah. Yeah, he's like an animal guy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. His um, his wife has like they used to run like a cat and dog rescue or something like that. But yeah, they're very good with our dog. I love that wildlife. Josh, what about you? Well, like I said, I missed almost all of production, so I don't have a whole lot oh, of like. Yeah. Well, what about from pre-production development or post? <laughs> I remember uh, location scouting those other houses. Remember way back when we went to that one house that had like a grow, <gasps> like a grow house <laughs> situation in the garage, and we were just like, okay. The huffers. We went to the place with all the huffers. Huffers. Uh, do you not? Am I too old? Do you not know that term? Like huffers are like people who huff paint cans or like whipped cream or like they, was that what was was that going on at that house there were inhalants there was oh i um, missed that yeah there was like a lot of weird stuff in that house it well, yeah it was weird it was like a house where the grandson or the nephew like someone was caretaking the house who clearly didn't care about taking care of a house Mm-hmm. And was just having a lot of fun there, right? And they were trying to like make money off of it, but they hadn't cleaned up the house in advance of our scout. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember like all kinds of like just weird little things like that during pre-production. It was like, hmm, could we make this work? I guess if we really had to. And we were thinking about like sharing <laughs> it with another movie that was going to be shooting like right around ours. And I think we pushed because I think that was when we were still thinking of shooting oh, in the summer and then in Anne's, August. Yeah. yeah and I think it was because of Anne's schedule. We moved it into like, what is it? March, April. March or April that we shot, which was obviously a lot better. It gave us extra time and allowed us to find the location that wound up being exactly what we needed amazingly mm-hmm. and looks so cool. I don't know. That, that's a memory that sticks out to me. Just like walking through that that one house. Could this ever possibly work? And yeah. I remember the hardest scene I've ever had to shoot was that dinner scene oh. between Edward, June, and Samuel, where the doors and the windows kept opening and closing, and they had the giggles, and I felt like such an amateur director. Like, I was like, how do I take control of this situation? (laughs) And then I remember Ray and Jeff and Anne were like, do you, can you even cut something together? And I was like, actually, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We could totally cut something together. And I didn't really know if we could cut anything together but I told them we could and then when we cut it together it all worked it was like them having the giggles made it look like two of the characters were flirting with each other and it somehow worked but I remember in the moment I was like why is my cast laughing so much and why can't we be productive and so it's like one of those learning lessons of even when you think you're at the 
bottom of a hill, a metaphorical hill, like, like maybe you still have something worth cutting together. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that happened. That's amazing. I love that scene too. Yeah. Oh, the scene turned out really well. It was the moment on set was super awkward, but um, (laughs) I think Bernice probably remembers. Yes, I remember. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing I really remember from the set was the working with the puppet, the bird puppet. Which well, that was a whole thing in pre-production too. Like, how are we gonna put a bird in this movie? Will it be a CG bird or a real bird? I think we made the right decision. I mean, yeah. Ultimately, like, we don't get a lot of people complaining about the bird, which is the goal, right? Is that people aren't are not paying too much attention to this bird? I I particularly like it. I love it. it, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Um, fine to suspend your disbelief a little bit in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a weird movie. So who cares if we have a taxidermy bird moving its neck around in it? <laughs> yeah. Just how I see it. And Marcy did an amazing job. So there's also that. Oh, yeah. Marcy Marcy was like Marcy, was our, our production queen. designer. Yeah. Worship. yeah. Worship at Marcy's feet. Yeah. Yeah. That's that all was a fun I part have. of it, too. Yeah. Guys, we did it. We did a podcast. We did yes. it. Is hopefully. there anything else you want to say? Oh, wait. What were you saying, parties? I was just saying, I hopefully I didn't put my foot in my mouth too much this podcast. This is <laughs> Me what too. I, was, I was stressed out about it all day. Parties, where do people find you? And if they want to approach you, how do they do that? I don't even know. I'm very unapproachable. <laughs> <laughs> You're too uh, cool. No, not at all. They could always reach out on Instagram or Facebook. I'm on social media. Name is Party Sullens. And then we could go from there if anyone is interested in projects that they want to yeah approach me with and you consider yourself a producer that is that is how you define yourself yeah i am a producer (laughs) josh i wouldn't know we were going to do this um i didn't either (laughs) yeah i am reachable uh let's see I mean, probably the best way to get a hold of me if somebody really wanted to work with me is on my website, which is joshcompton.com. And there's like a little, you know, contact form where you can shoot me an email. But yeah, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, although I really hardly use any of those, but I'm there. (laughs) You can send me messages on them. I think I'm the JD Compton on Twitter. Well done. And Josh, do you consider yourself a producer? I know you're so much more as well, but what is your identity? Oh, man. I don't know. I'm a, a filmmaker. Yeah. I just love making movies. I would love to produce another film. I'd like to make my own film. And, yeah. you know, my day job is I work in post-production as like a post-coordinator, post-supervisor. So I do those things as well. I do think of myself as a producer now, having done this movie. And there you have it. There's uh, Liz, Perdice, and Josh's, aka JD's, conversation about Speed of Life. Thanks so much to uh, all you guys for uh, doing that episode without me. Um, Sounded like a lot of fun. I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. I will. I promise. But it does sound like Liz did not go ahead and do our plugs. So if you want to find out more about uh, Making Movies is Hard, you can go to www.makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things that everyone talked about in this episode, although (laughs) I don't really know what those things were. So it's probably mostly just going to be Speed of Life stuff, which is also great. Um, and I'll try to find pictures of all these uh, wonderful people to put them on there too. Um, and then, uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at com, and Liz or I, or both, or maybe even Timothy, who sometimes still responds to these, we'll get back to you. Um, and then, uh, yeah, what else? Oh, we are, uh, MMIH podcast on all the things, Twitter, Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook at uh, Making Movies is Hard uh, podcast, I believe. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, Liz is uh, at Liz Manichelle on all the things. And then she's got a website. She's got a movie out, Speed of Life. Go to speedoflife.com. Go buy the movie. Rent the movie right now, as I said earlier. If you have not seen it yet, now is a great time to see it. What else do we got? We got other things, too. We've got things like our Patreon page that you can check out. Um, you know, uh, we are, uh, making movies is hard, or I think MMIH podcast also on Patreon. So you can find us there. And then if you want to leave a review for us, you can do so on iTunes or Stitcher, which is very helpful. I don't think they do, uh, reviews on Spotify. Maybe they do. I don't know. But if there is something to do on Spotify, you can do that too. Gotta get our Spotify game up. We're on Spotify now, but, um, I don't know how many people listen to us on Spotify. Anywho. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you all next week.